The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Patricia Engel is the author of The Veins of the Ocean, which won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, and It's Not Love, It's Just Paris, which won the International Latino Book Award, and Vida, which was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway and Young Lions Fiction Awards, a New York Times notable book, and winner of Colombia's National Book Award, the Premio Biblioteca de Narrativa Colombiana. She has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. Her stories have appeared in the Best American Short Stories, the Best American Mystery Stories, the O. Henry Prize Stories, and elsewhere. She is, says the San Francisco Chronicle, a unique and necessary voice for the Americas. Lisa Coe says Patricia Engel is a stunning writer with astonishing talents, and the New York Times says she has uncanny insight into the human condition. She is also our guest today, here to talk about her new novel, Infinite Country, and a Gabriel Garcia Marquez story that she read when she was 14 and which she thinks about often. Patricia Engel, today, on The History of Literature. go. Hello, everyone. Let's go straight at him in our best Patrick O'Brien, Patrick O'Brienian way. Patricia Engel, all that praise and all those prizes, incredible. Sometimes I feel like the future is in good hands and the past is in good hands too. Can we say that? Is that possible when we're talking about an author like Gabriel Garcia Marquez? I think we can. That's a past that stretches back into timelessness, at least for me. He's kind of the, the equivalent of a, of a Bob Dylan, let's say, who could write songs that immediately sounded like folk songs. Garcia Marquez writes works that feel epic, that have a, a kind of grandeur to them, almost as if they're stories that have been around forever, like folk tales, epic myths. Patricia Engel is a little like that, too. These books of hers are full of richness and substance, sustenance, the equivalent of a full-course meal. Can a podcast be like that? Well, of course not. Well, I suppose it can. I wouldn't rule it out, but don't get your hopes up for this little thing. <laughs> Eat first before you turn us on. But we're going to have a bit of an appetizer. We'll do our best to replicate a full course meal here today. We'll have a bit of an appetizer with an amazing email from a surprising listener. This one surprised me anyway. I seem to be surprised every week by some listener or other. I was surprised by our 94-year-old friend who listens on her tablet in Israel. And I was surprised by Robin Lithgow, John's big sister, who weighed in when we did our Amelia Lanyer episode. She held our feet to the fire on that one. Emailing about Shakespeare's education. That was fun. And I was surprised by our 16-year-old friend in the Philippines. And I was surprised by our married couple friends. Oh, have their new little baby. The History of Literature podcast baby. Official. <laughs> we have a couple of those. And of course, our lonely postal worker in remote Sweden. That was a surprise once upon a time. All those were good surprises and many others too. But this one, you'd think I would not be surprised after all this time. And yet, this emailer did surprise me. Something new for us. We will have that plus a preview of our story for this week. It's Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Patricia Engel and our surprising listener email after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. 
Join the cat in the hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Subject from Berlin. Dear Jack, I am really happy having discovered your podcast. As a painter, I am often in the studio for hours on end, and being able to have something so insightful and well-tuned in terms of sense of humor, tone, and passion as your podcast is an absolute gem. My partner, husband since last week, yay, has brought your podcast to my attention, and I've been a fan ever since. On long drives, Two weeks ago, we drove from Berlin to Luxembourg to set up an exhibition. We tuned into your podcast. We had the greatest time revisiting Tolkien, just bursting out laughing while driving through the German countryside. Thank you for these nice moments. Keep them coming. P.S. Love all the Proust episodes. So nice to hear somebody discuss what one has only read in the secrecy of one's own mind. Wink. All the best. Charlie. Parentheses. And, in a way, Andy. Wow. Okay, where to begin? First of all, congratulations to Charlie and Andy. I'm so glad to hear that you were married last week, which is so exciting. A week ago. Wow. <laughs> Hope you're off to a good start. Hope you have many happy and healthy years ahead of you. And thank you for the email. I'm glad to be a part of those trips through the German countryside on your way to Luxembourg and back. And to hear that the podcast has brought you some joy. And then, you guys, listeners, Charlie Stein, that's who wrote this. Charlie Stein is amazing. You can check out her work at charliestein.com. This is great stuff. She's a real painter, <laughs> a visionary, and she has a very literary background. Or maybe I should say a literary sensibility. I'm going to quote from another one of her emails, which was a follow-up to the first one. She says, In an early project together, Andy and I made paintings that only existed in the words of authors in great literature, such as Anna Karenina's portrait by Vronsky, Dorothea Brooke posing as a saint in Middlemarch, amongst others. While reading Proust, we also researched what style Elstir's painting in Balbec would have looked like, and after some tedious detours, came to the conclusion it was closest to a description which could be attributed to one of Gustave Courbet's paintings. However, it seemed all of them, Manet, Gustave Moreau, Pissarro, and Whistler, and even Degas, vaguely remembering a drawing of a girl by a fireplace, lend their personas to the character Elstir. As a painter, you always have an image in your head of what these paintings would look like, so it was magical to see them come to life, end quote. Don't you want to see these paintings? You should look at as much of Charlie Stein as you can, so head on over to charliestein.com. It's not a, an ad. <laughs> it sounded like it the way I said that. I didn't mean it to. I am urging you to take a look. I wonder if Charlie ever thought about turning these into something we could buy. These paintings of hers. Of course, I'm sure you could buy the paintings themselves, some of them, I would guess. But wouldn't you like to buy a book of those literary paintings with Dorothea Brooke and Proust's Elstir, all the imaginings? 
Anna Karenina by Vronsky. Or maybe mugs, postcards or something. Is that too crass? My mind immediately go to the commercial? The acquisition? Want to obtain them? I don't know. I don't know what I'm thinking. It's my dream. It's my dream to live inside literature. That's why. Anyway, thank you very much, Charlie Stein. And good luck to you and Andy. Speaking of dreams and living inside literature, our guest today makes that easy to do. Her books are full-on immersive, the kind of book you fall into and start dreaming. She's going to tell us about her artistic family, her life as a writer, how she got her start, and her appreciation for Gabriel Garcia Marquez. We're going to talk about a story of his that was new to me. So I think I think I'm like most people, probably somewhere along the way, you read 100 Years of Solitude, amazing, and Love in the Time of Cholera, also amazing. And then the stories and the other books and the essays and things just sort of pop up here and there. We read a lot about Garcia Marquez. He's such a huge figure, thanks mainly to those two novels, but the other books too. They were like, the two novels were kind of like the Iliad and the Odyssey, something to me anyway, Homeric. He started Tolstoy's like this, too. War and Peace, Anna Karenina, those two. Giants. Garcia Marquez started as a poet. And then he read Kafka, and he thought, everything is possible in prose. Now that I've read Kafka, I see. Prose can do anything you want. He studied law until he tired of that. And he worked as a newspaper reporter until he had a famous car ride an epiphany in a car ride where he finally seized upon his mind, seized upon the tone and the style that he wanted for his novel. That led to 100 years of solitude and what has often been called the Latin American boom here in the United States, I guess around the world too, but I'm sure it's, I'm sure I'm grabbing a phrase that's probably United States centric. The Latin American boom. It ushered in magical realism, another phrase to put in quotes, with other writers like Isabel Allende and Salman Rushdie, who were writing in a similar vein. And now we're more than 50 years later than the first publication of 100 Years of Solitude. We've had time to absorb Garcia Marquez and his career and his influence. And I asked Patricia Engel, you'll hear that today, I asked her who's... Her, you know, her parents were born in Colombia. I asked her if she still feels like writers from Colombia are pigeonholed, in a sense, as if they're not let out of Gabo's shadow. I was thinking of readers and critics who sometimes fail to see the newer writers on their own terms. They try to fit them into a box. It's especially acute, this problem, when the writers are still alive. I think Flannery O'Connor used to say this about Southern writers and William Faulkner, quote, the presence alone of Faulkner in our midst makes a great difference in what the writer can and cannot permit himself to do. Nobody wants his mule and wagon stalled on the same track the Dixie Limited is roaring down, end quote. But of course, Patricia Engel is of a different generation, a different time and place. She's a different person. We'll hear what she says about Garcia Marquez, both as a coming at him both as a reader and as a fellow writer, and also as a person. There are a few moments where I was struck by how wise Patricia Engel is. She's a great writer, sure, of course. We know that. I expect energy, I expect humor and sparkle. Facility with language, let's call, let's say, vision, an angle of some kind, brains. Those are all things I expect from great writers. I don't always expect to hear wisdom. Patricia Engel has that too. The story we focused on is one I'll go into more in our next episode, Thursday's episode. It's called The Incredible and Sad Tale of Innocent Arendira and Her Heartless Grandmother. It's available online for free from the original publisher in English, Esquire Magazine, which published it in 1973, just a few years after 100 Years of Solitude came out in English. It was published in book form in 1978, and that seems to be the edition that made its way into Patricia Engel's hands. 
in New Jersey. It struck her at a formative period, like some other great writers, and so we have Gabo to thank for the impression that it made on her as well. Literature continues, doesn't it, people? Through the years and through the ages, because we are human beings and because we communicate with art and with stories, we draw paintings on cave walls and we paint them on canvases in Berlin and drive them to our exhibitions in Luxembourg for all to see. We tell stories around the campfires on ancient Greek islands and we type our stories on a Smith Corona as Garcia Marquez did, and we write them in private journals, as the young Patricia Engel did, and we type them in our lonely rooms just for ourselves, as Patricia's grandmother had done before her. We type them into our computers, and we send them out into the world, and we read them and learn from them and talk about them, because that is who we are, and that is what we do. Patricia Engel, after this. Okay, joining me now is Patricia Engel, the author of several acclaimed works of literature, including the novels The Veins of the Ocean and It's Not Love, It's Just Paris, and a collection of linked short stories called Vida. Patricia has won a number of prizes and fellowships and now teaches at the University of Miami. Her latest work, the novel Infinite Country, tells the story of family, war, and migration, and it's already being talked about as one of the best books of 2021. She's here today to talk about her background, her writing, and her relationship as a reader with Gabrielle Garcia Marquez's long short story, The Incredible and Sad Tale of Innocent Arendira and Her Heartless Grandmother. Patricia Engel, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm actually going to start with a confession. When I read your list of awards and accolades, I assumed that you must be in your 60s or 70s, and I was planning to ask you what it was like to encounter the story of Gabriel Garcia Marquez in 1973, and instead, I'm not sure you were even born then. I was not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, before we get to Marquez, let's start with your background. Uh, Where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey, in the suburbs of New Jersey, and I lived there for Um, all my life until I graduated high school and I went to college at New York University. Mm. And what kind of childhood was it there in New Jersey? Well, um, I grew up in a very large uh, extended family. My Mm. father Mm. is the oldest of nine siblings and um, my father's immediate family, his siblings and his parents all emigrated to the United States uh, around the time that he did. Mm. So they were all in the area and all my cousins. So we had a very large community of just family. Yeah. Um, And besides that, um, I lived in predominantly Anglo suburb. So it was like living within two worlds. I had my Colombian family, but I also went to school in your typical New Jersey suburb. Yeah. And were your parents adults when they immigrated? Um, yes, they were. Yeah. So what had they been doing in Colombia? They're from Colombia, right? Yes. And what were they doing there? And what did they do once they got to America? Um, well, they lived with their families. Um, my mother actually came first to the United States with her mother and her sisters um, at the end of high school. And so she actually finished high school in the United States. Hmm. And then uh, she went back to Colombia sometime after that. But during her short time in the United States, she met my father, who had recently arrived with his family. Um, my father then went to Colombia to propose to my mother, and they got married over hmm. there. And she came back with him mm-hmm. to the United States, and they lived in um, Flushing, Queens for a time, in Puerto Rico as well, and eventually found their way, as many people do, to New Jersey. <laughs> right. 
And then I read that you were determined to be an artist as a young age. Was that something that was coming from anyone in the family or was that something you devised on your own? Yeah, there are a lot of artists in my family, mm -hmm. artists, uh, musicians, painters. Uh, everybody in my family had a creative outlet and it was totally normal in my family. Nobody made a living from their art, but everybody had something. Mm. So it, it was very natural in my family that, you know, as you grew up, you sort of discovered what your art was going to be. Yeah. And uh, in, in my case, when I was very little, I wanted to be a painter. And I would draw a lot. I was really into drawing. And then when I learned how to write and use words, I would write captions on my drawings. And eventually those captions grew into stories and mm. they just sort of took over and the drawings kind of went away. And, and uh, I got sick for, um, for a while when I was around 11 years old. And my uncle who was a musician, he was a symphony conductor, um, came to visit me because I was home from school for a few weeks. And he brought me a blank book, like a, a ruled journal. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like, you know, one of those diaries with a lock that they sell for little girls. It was like, it was like a journal, you know, for, yeah. for grown up people. Yeah. And I just <laughs> thought it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and because I was home from school and alone all the time, I just started writing in this thing all the time. And then my parents kept me supplied with just blank ruled books. Oh, yeah. And I became a rather obsessive um, journaler yeah. throughout my childhood. So um, my grandmother was a writer. My grandmother, who had nine children, yeah. somehow still found the time to write. And she wrote for herself. It's not like she was planning to publish anything in in the time in which and community and environment in which my grandmother obviously grew up such opportunities were just simply not available yeah so she wrote for herself to accompany herself to entertain herself she wrote of course this is the time when phone calls to columbia were extremely expensive right mm. so she would write these epic letters to all her family back in Columbia. And she would write epic letters to me and I lived 10 minutes away. She would write letters to everybody. Oh, yeah. Um, she also wrote um, books for herself, for her own fun. And she r almost never showed these things to people. They were really for herself. <laughs> so I think that was my first example of your art, first and foremost, is for you. Yeah. You know, and um, if you're not getting pleasure and satisfaction in, in the act of writing or creating, um, there's really no point. You yeah, know? yeah. Were there... so she was the first writer and I don't know, my my example, I should say. Yeah. Did that resonate with you or was that just something that was so private for her that it was uh, not something you that registered with you that that here's an example of a writer and, and someone who uh, was doing something similar to you with your journals? Um, it, it didn't quite hit me yet. I yeah. didn't know any other writers. I didn't know that you could be a professional writer. I had no idea that that was something that could exist. I don't know. It just didn't click in my mind. Yeah. But I did, looking back, I think something that's very sort of special about the way that I grew up and the family I grew up in is that my grandmother's writing was really respected. Um, uh, my grandmother yeah. was given her time to write and everyone respected. Nobody made uh, little of, nobody belittled it or tried to intrude on it. It was really something that was honored and valued, even though she did it for herself. Yeah. Yeah. So for you, uh, it sounds like my next question was going to be whether you ever felt pressure to do something that was more practical or or would have a better chance of earning a living. It sounds like uh, maybe the people who were around you would view it as uh, not necessarily that that was how you were going to earn your living, but that it was something that you should be encouraged to continue and it wasn't something that you would need to give up as you grew older. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Um Everyone, like I said, had a day job. Everyone had a, a fallback career, a principal career. Mm -hmm. But that some, somehow um, everyone's creative pursuits were valued just as much. My uncles, who were musicians, uh, there were times that were more productive than others when they were performing more or, or you know, teaching more. But um, 
very often that was not the case. So they had um, other ways of um, earning a living. The same for those who painted. Uh, my own father paints, you know, and my father is an, is an artist in many ways. So I always knew that I would have to have other jobs, but yeah. I also felt like um, I could still center my life in such a way where writing um, could be a priority and could be respected in that way. Yeah. How does the family feel about you now? Do they feel like, oh, you're the <laughs> you're somebody who actually turned this into a living? You didn't have to have a day job, or I guess teaching. I mean, that is a day job, but yeah. uh, <laughs> they must be they must be very proud of you. Yeah, they are. Um, you know, they. Uh, I grew up in a family of storytellers, and mm. and so they appreciate it. But mind you, they knew me when I was just, uh, you know, a quiet girl writing in uh, my journals. So <laughs> right, for them, right. it's kind of like nothing new. It's not really a shock that I'm I'm still doing that essentially, yeah. just yeah. writing for myself. It's just that my books get published now. Um, but it, it's the same sort of private practice that I had. From way back when. Yeah. And your first book was dedicated, Everything is for My Parents. Uh, was that because of the sacrifices that they had made? Um, all my books are dedicated to my parents. Mm. Infinite is also dedicated to my parents and my brother at the time. Um, yeah, there, it's, of course, for their sacrifices, for their example, for their support. My parents have been my uh, biggest cheerleaders my whole life, very often when other people were doing all they could to discourage me. Mm. Um, so everything that I've uh, managed to carve out on my own path has has been because of my parents, um, you know, just shining a light on me and, and helping me find my way. Yeah, oh, that's wonderful. You mentioned Anais Nin as your first literary influence. How old were you and and what about her writing made you see it differently from the other things that you had read? Yeah, I don't know if she was the very first, but she was certainly a, an important one. Mm -hmm. And I, um, when I was, you know, between the ages of 14 and 15, this was a very crucial and formative uh, reading period for me. And a lot of the works that happened to hit me or that I happened to come across during those years are works that I, I really feel were part of my creative foundation for all the years that followed. So one of those was Anais Nin. Um, and honestly, I, I don't know how I came across her. Mm. Uh, my, my brother is older, and um, he was probably in college at that time. Mm. Mm -hmm. So my brother was always obviously ahead of me in terms of what he was reading and the books he brought into our house. So I was very often going into my brother's books that he got from his classes and things. Yeah. My mother at that point had also gone back to college, so she also had a lot of cool books. But my mom was uh, also a big reader, so I don't know. I must have found this book in my house or maybe at the local bookstore. I don't know. But... Um, I think it was Henry and June was probably the first one. And, you know, I read all her journals and she was an obsessive journaler too. Yeah. And I think that's, and one of my favorite books by Anaisen is The Four Chambered Heart. Mm -hmm. And I think looking back on what I connected to is she was really a, a, a writer in exile. Mm -hmm. a and there was something in that voice, in that that um, feminine displacement and dislocation that obviously resonated with me yeah, and um, became important for me. Yeah. And at what point, and was it, was it before this or after this uh, reading of her, at what point did you say, I can write things that aren't just for me to read, I can write things that other people will want to read? It took a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably when my first book was published, I was like, oh, people are going to read this. Uh, it took a long time. I, I was a solitary writer. Um, yeah. And maybe it was when I went to uh, graduate school. Oh. And I was in the workshop culture of graduate school. Mm -hmm. Or the first time I had a story published, which was, you know, a few years after that. 
I don't know. I, I mean, sometimes it still doesn't hit me that I'm writing things that people are going oh. to. <laughs> Maybe that's healthy. Uh, hopefully I didn't just put that in your mind. Maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah. when, uh, when did you start, you know, printing it out and, and handing it to others to read? Um, in graduate school when I oh, had to write for yeah. a workshop. Yeah. I, I was never the kind of kid who was ever like, look what I wrote. Right. Read what I wrote. Never. And I never had a teacher really, you know, encourage my creative writing. I was always good in English classes and things like that. But um, I don't know. I was not the kind of kid that teachers were attracted to encouraging or, you know, praising the way they are with some other students. Uh, I was never that kid. When I was in college, I had a wonderful philosophy professor who um, pointed out that he thought that I was going to be a writer, that I was a good writer, and he was very encouraging. Um, but, but like I said, I wrote for myself. Yeah. I, really, I really just wrote. I would take, when I was working other jobs in those t- in those years in, in New York, I would take um, like night workshops and continuing education programs and things like that. So I had to share my work there. Yeah. But I only did it because it was required. Right. And I would just like suffer through it when they were talking about my work. But it was, I would never, you know, share it with my friends, nothing like that. So did you go to graduate school? Was that an MFA program? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So something in you said, I think I belong in the world of creative writing, even before you had, you weren't like sending out short stories to see if you could get them published or anything, but you applied to the graduate school program for it. Yeah, it's kind of funny the order of things i had no idea what a literary journal was until i got to my mfa program and i didn't even know what an mfa program was yeah when i was in college i went to college i didn't even know you could major in creative writing yeah i do recall that i i took a creative writing elective and i went to go see the professor during his office hours and i said you know i i really like writing i'm really serious about it what can i do and he just looked at me and was like, you, you, oh. I, I, I wouldn't bother. Like I was crazy to you know, suggest something like this. So that really put me back into my shell. And I just kept yeah. my writing for years and years and years. Oh. So I worked after college for five years in a variety of jobs in New York. Well, like I said, taking these writing workshops at night here and there. And I, I didn't have any mentors or anything like that. Like, like I said, nobody ever stopped me and was like, hey, good job. That never happened. So um, I used to hang around the Barnes and Noble at Union Square in New York City. Yep. And on the floor, they had this amazing magazine section. And <laughs> yep, I, would I know it. I know it. You know it, right? Yep. So that's where I discovered Poets and Writers magazine. Uh-huh. And all the ads for MFA programs in there. And that's where I learned what an MFA program is. And I thought, wow, if I can go to one of these, I can just write for a couple of years and like see what happens. That's really my whole thought process. (laughs) Right. It was not that, you know, complex or anything. And that's how I applied to MFA programs. I thought, well, I'll go and I'll I'll, I'll get to just focus on writing for a while. And then I'll have to come back to New York and go, you know, get another job. And um, I did a three-year MFA program and... Um, a year after that, I got a two-book deal. So <sighs> that's how all that happened. Wow. Okay. That's a beautiful story. It, 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 <laughs> I don't know many stories from writers like that. It almost reminds me of uh, stand-up comics who say they just found themselves at open mic night and going up on stage and not even really being sure why or what was driving them to it, but just feeling like this was something they needed to try and some place that they belonged. And then it Mm -hmm. turned out that, you know, they had been funny all their lives and they actually, there was a good reason why they found themselves, you know, drifting toward that space, but not having, you know, a real plan or a focused plan, but just kind of uh, moving in the right direction. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the new book, Infinite Country. Uh, what is the novel about? 
Um, Nipponi Country tells the story of a Colombian family fractured by immigration and deportation over 20 or so years through the turn of the millennium, um, the events of September 11th, um, and how that changed America and America's perception of foreigners, for example. Mm -hmm. And then also Colombia's arrival at a peace accord and the onset of the new presidency of 2016 and how all that has changed the landscape for migration hmm. uh, in the United States and beyond. Yeah. And and it tells, uh, it's multi-generational and it sounds like there are five different family members at least who kind of have a voice in this book. Yeah, it examines the challenges of a mixed status family. So mm. there's the two parents and the three children, and they all occupy different spaces of what's quote-unquote called status in this migratory landscape. There are undocumented family members. There are U.S. citizen family members. There are family members who were born in one country and lived in another their entire life. So it really chronicles how a family can sustain itself through the separation of borders and migration laws that are ever-changing and deportation, and how love transcends those borders in our darkest moments, and what that does to a family. Mm. And the way that uh, decisions that are made by a generation of parents will have an effect on the identity of the children it sounds like that's part of this as well. For example, if if parents decide to live in one country or another, or if children are born in one country or another, they become citizens there, or um, it sounds like uh, kids can look at what their parents have done and say, why did you do this? I wish you hadn't done it this way. Or the decision you made 20 years ago is really affecting my identity of who I am today and how I relate to my siblings and the people around me. And and maybe there's some some potential for blame or potential for gratitude. Yeah, Infinite Country examines one family that's undergoing this process of um, migration and diaspora now, mm -hmm. right, in the present moment. But really, migration is the natural order of the world. It's how the human species has ensured its survival. And the large majority of people in the United States, for example, are descendants from people who have made the same choices that are being made by the people in this story. People who migrated either by choice or by force or by circumstance or accidentally, what have you, but there was a step taken, leaving one homeland to begin a life in another. Mm. And very often it's between that generation and the next and maybe the one that follows until those connections are lost, until the descendants are able to arrive at a place where a lot of people in this country are, where they have largely disassociated mm. from their ancestral past in terms of migration, to the point where they can look at other people who are undergoing that experience now and feel no connection whatsoever. Yeah, right. And how does that play out in the the context of your novel? Does it is that kind of the driving force of conflict, or is that are we talking more about um, you know characters? Each individual character has sort of an existential crisis to go through as they figure out who they are and how they fit. I think these characters are less concerned with their identity and how they fit in as how they are really just navigating. Hmm day to day, mm -hmm. and the accumulation of days that then becomes years and year after year, and these great distances are, are uh, built between this family who are really only united by the certainty of their love for one another when everything else remains uncertain regarding whether or not they'll be able to ever be together again. Mm, right. And does the story run parallel to your family's story? Um, yes and no. My family story is different. Um, my my family uh, came from Colombia, just like the family in Infinite Country, um, in in different ways. But they are the same in that my parents gambled on a future, a new life in this country, similar to the family in Infinite Country. But I think every family is like this. Every family, whether it was some time ago or it was in the more recent past, has undergone the same gamble. Mm. For, the, 
for a better future. Mm-hmm. We just, you know, it happens in different ways. Right. But yeah, the the story begins in Bogota, um, the capital of, of Colombia. That is my mother's hometown. So there's another connection there. Mm. And the book has an element of Andean myth. Uh, what were you drawing upon for that? Well, as I've gotten older, I've become much more aware of the connections we have to the land and the people that made us in mm-hmm. ways do not even understand. Um, the Andean landscape is extraordinary. It's really something to behold. And it moves me every time I, I visit. And even though I, I w- was not born there and I, I have never lived there for extended periods, it's still something that I feel very intimately connected to. And, and it must be for something that I, I can't even articulate. Just that somehow um, the land is in my blood. Mm for I, I don't know how else to put it. So the stories, um, which are ancestral knowledge, uh, traditional history, uh, some people would call it myths, other people would call it truth, um, that explain the origins of mankind and, mm. and how we fit into this picture of uh, life on earth and the other creatures that surround us. Have always been interesting to me. Some of these stories I grew up with. Some I learned later in life. They were told to me, or or I learned them through research, my own curiosity. But I'm I've always been fascinated by how all of us, uh, whether as a collective or as individuals, are really the sum of the stories that we have been told mm-hmm. about ourselves and about one another. Right, and what. Uh, effect were you hoping to have on the reader to include this element? Well, it's probably to take the focus so much off the individual and to remind us that we are rooted in the earth. We are rooted in communities and rooted in history. It's not all about us. It's Mm. not all about me. I am more than me and you are more than you. Your roots go far deeper than anything you and I can even see. Yeah. Let me ask about the title, because infinite countries suggest to me that countries have no borders, no beginnings, no endings, and their reach is is far back into history as far as you can see and as far into the future and, and basically as far as the mind can can fathom. Uh, what is that what you had in mind with the title or what were you thinking? Well, I don't want to give it away. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) It is something that comes out in the book. Okay. Uh, But there's a lot of ways to think about it. Okay. Uh, Well, the other thing that this this leads us right into is Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Sometimes when I read him, I feel like I'm reading Homer. It feels he's such a storyteller, and it feels like the stories uh, that he's writing about have somehow he makes them feel as if they've been around, you know, for for centuries and millennia and that he's just recounting something that is almost outside of time but is just elemental to the the human understanding. Mm-hmm. So the story you mentioned was the incredible and sad tale of innocent Arendira and her heartless grandmother, which was new to me. I hadn't read this before. When did you encounter this story? I think I encountered it during that uh, sort of crucial reading period that I mm. mentioned before, around age uh, 14 to 15. Mm-hmm. And do you remember the effect that it had on you the first time you read it? Well, I still have the copy that I found floating around my house that I read, and I see that it's from 1978, so it's pretty old. Yeah. Um, but I, I, it's funny, I've read this story so many times, and of course you read it differently every time, depending on where you are in your life. When I was a 14-year-old, I liked that I was reading a story about a 14-year-old. Yeah, girl. right. And that was enough for me to be hooked and pay attention. Um, I think at the time, mind you, I was just a 14-year-old Colombian girl in suburban New Jersey, okay? Um, Really into books and animals and nature. (laughs) Writing in my journal and things like that. Um, But what I read at that time was about this... um, 14 year old girl who was trapped in her circumstances yeah and by the story's end she gets out yeah you know she runs runs like the 
runs like a deer, as he says. <laughs> so um, I think that's that's what I liked about it. Yeah, there were a lot of things that probably my mind was too young to really, you know, understand. And then as I've read it over the years, there's different things that I see about it. But um, it's a story that I, I still I still like to read. Yeah. And she, uh, just to share this with the listeners, she wasn't trapped in a, a, a an urban or a suburban lifestyle, but she was no. <laughs> she was basically she's kind of the granddaughter of smugglers and, or, and, and the daughter of a smuggler and living with her grandmother who keeps her in almost slave like conditions. And her, her grandmother was a it's not, the legend is that she was a former prostitute herself. And when the 14 year old girl accidentally burns down the grandmother's mansion, uh, the grandmother forces her into a life of prostitution to pay off the cost of the mansion. And it's it's quite harrowing. And yet there's something kind of, I don't know how to describe it exactly. It also read a little bit like a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, I mean, and it's, it, she, the story describes that it ended up becomes like a tale that people in the desert tell. And mm-hmm. of course, set in, in a desert, in the desert regions of Colombia, which could be like La Guajira or the Tatacoa Desert, which is very, you know, a thrilling, mysterious place if you're not from there um, to think about. So the story does lend itself to, to all of this kind of um, mystery and possibility. But I read it now and I'm like, wow, this is a story about sex trafficking. Yeah, right. And I, I read it in really different ways. But still, the thing that I like about it is that she gets away. Yeah. <laughs> she runs away, you know. <laughs> so she she has control of her own fate in the end. Yeah. Do you read it as good or innocence versus evil? Do you see these characters as people? There's not a lot of inner life in the people, although, as you say, the, the they do have agency and, and it does feel like we're rooting for her to get away, as she ultimately does. Well, I don't think really in that binary of good and evil, because I think good people can do what we identify as evil um, a lot in their lives and vice versa. You yeah. know? Um, really, it's a, there's a story about survival. The grandmother in her way is ensuring everybody's survival, her own and her granddaughter's. But she speaks sometimes about the day that Erendira will be free of her. You yeah, know, right. And she, in her mind, she thinks she's setting Erendira up for life, you know, uh, to be like a queen, you know, that that men will serve. So in her mind, her actions are justified. Yeah. Um, the character of Ulysses was described as love-struck for Erendira and, you know, um, mostly benevolent. He's the one who ends up killing the grandmother. Yeah. Right. He can barely move after that. So look what he's done. And Irendira, who's been, you know, exploited and exploited and exploited. So you want you want to believe in her goodness because she's ex- been so exploited at the same time. In him, though she may love him in some way, she also sees an opportunity that he's going to be the one who will kill her grandmother because she can't because it's her grandmother after all. Yeah. But, but that doesn't leave her at, in debt to him. Right. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask you that because I I sort of wrote out a summary of the story and maybe I'll read that at the beginning uh, before we start the interview. So the listeners kind of have a sense of what the story is about. And when I wrote the summary, I I said this, I thought to myself, this makes it sound like a love story, but I don't read it as as a love story. It's not exactly what I expected sort of halfway through was that these two were going to find love and that that would be ultimately the you know, happy ending, so to speak, for Arendira. Yeah, and you don't really know because um, Ulysses, as much as he loved her, believes he loved her, was was a paying customer at one point. Yeah. Um, so he was on the exploitation line as well. Um, I like that at the end of this story, the way that she she disappears into the desert and is never heard or heard from or seen again, then makes you wonder if it all been sort of a mirage. Mm, mm-hmm. or, and, you know, if, if she ever really existed or if she was invented. So, Yeah. It's like the, we're back to the storytelling and the way that the story can be part of us and can form us even if it's, even if it's true or if it's not true. Mm-hmm. Mm. So 
I'm interested in your relationship with Marquez as a writer following Marquez. And I know that there was a a point where I I feel like there were a lot of Latino, Latina authors who felt like they were being pigeonholed or that the, the expectations that he had set were problematic for them, that that critics or readers would have a set of expectations and would kind of misread some of their work. Have we gotten far enough away from that now where that's not something that you think about? Or is that still a legacy that you feel like you have to wrestle with? I mean, it's not something I ever really thought about because the way people read my work or read someone else's work is out of my control. Yeah. Some people have no other thing to compare work by a Colombian writer by than than his. And that doesn't mean anything other than they have not read enough. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So there's so much extraordinary uh, literature written by Colombians and by other Latin Americans that that to have just one person be a benchmark or a reference point for an entire world of literature over decades and decades, it seems seems a little silly. Yeah. Does his example give you freedom? I mean, in some ways, it feels like he's such a pure storyteller, and he himself kind of bent so many rules and everything. It seems like uh, for all of us, for, for anyone who comes after to sort of say, I can put this in a novel if I want. There's no reason why I can't. I don't have to be limited to, you know, things that are strictly true, there can be something valuable about uh, adding in the story, for example, the they were able to grow diamonds inside the oranges and smuggle those, and it gives it a flavor that uh, doesn't necessarily break the reader's brain because they get upset that, that, oh, well, this couldn't possibly be true. It's almost as if he helped show people that the, the author needs more freedom than that. Well, it depends on who your reader is and who you're centering as a reader. For Colombians, Things like this are not out of the ordinary at all. Mm. Um, my, my whole childhood was full of my grandmother um, telling stories that to anybody would sound totally absurd and fantastical and outside of reality. And she would swear to you that they were true. And I believed her. Yeah. Uh, and there are many things that exist in the Colombian imagination um, or in the Colombian mind that People, other people might not be able to perceive it as reality, but but they are very real things. So I think that perhaps um, one of the greatest gifts that um, that he gave us as writers is to um, to honor the truth of stories as as we've heard them and experienced them, and not place judgment on our own tales mm. on our stories but let let the the world of the unseen and the real and the unreal exist on the same plane of narrative possibility mm. that's so beautiful I'm, I'm tempted to end right there but i i have <laughs> i have a surprise bonus question for you sure are you ready yeah okay after a trip to south america you board a plane for the united states and settle in for a long nap Your sleep is disrupted by an announcement, and you're astonished by what you hear. This is the captain speaking. The speaker crackles. Would Patricia Engel please report to the cabin? Dreamily, you drift to the front of the plane and enter the cockpit. To your astonishment, the co-pilot turns to smile at you. He looks just like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. (laughs) Yes, it's really him, says the pilot. The gods of literature have arranged this because they want the two of you to have some time to discuss literature in life. You'll have a whole day together to eat lunch, drive around, and talk all you like. But here's the thing. The gods wanted me to give you a choice. We can land the plane in the New Jersey of your childhood, and you can show Gabo that world where you will be a 10-year-old girl introducing him to all the people there. Or we can take the plane to Miami in 2021, and you will be you today, and you can show him what the world is like now, interviewing him as an adult and telling him all about the modern world as you know it to be. Which option do you choose? Well, I would choose now. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if I would need to tell him about the modern world. I think he would have a pretty good sense of it since we lost him all not that long ago. Yeah. Okay. So the (laughs) 
you mean technology and, and so forth. You wouldn't it, it wouldn't be the kind of thing where you'd be showing him how things worked. But I was just thinking of of politics yeah. and the things that have happened in the last decade or so. I feel like he would have been able to see everything coming. Yeah, <laughs> it would have been you'd be confirming what he what he imagined was about to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I I guess I should add one thing about. The gratitude that I, as a, as a Colombian or Colombian-American um, writer or person, feel towards um, um, Garcia Marquez, which my mom, who's not a, not a writer, probably felt it too, and as do people who just read him, is that connection that he provided for those of us in diaspora to um, a world that we were not able to witness for, I'll give you an example. So in um, Love in the Time of Cholera, you know, you have these two lovers who go on a, a boat ride down the Rio Magdalena. And mm. that's what my grandparents did for their honeymoon. Mm. So because life is busy, and as I mentioned, I came from a large family, there were so many people around all the time. I never had my parents, I had the time, or probably it never occurred to me because I was a little girl to ask my grandparents what that was like. Yeah. And the closest I'll ever get to that is being able to read about it in one of Gabo's books. Yeah. There are so many things that life did not afford me the time to be able to ask, be it my grandparents or my other relatives of the older generations um, about our land and the, and the land that we left that I'm able to get from his books. So in that way, it's um it's a beautiful heritage that exists in his pages, um that that is, is special for me and so many people like me. Hmm. I <laughs> I think this has only happened one other time. It, I've been doing this for about five years. I have tears in my eyes. <laughs> oh, beautiful. The novel is called Infinite Country. Patricia Engel, thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a delight. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Are you surprised that I got a little weepy at the end? I sort of was when I listened back to this, but you know what happened? I was thinking about how wise and wonderful Patricia Engel is and how lucky I was to speak with her. And I was thinking about how much I love books and how important literature has been to me over the years, and the idea that literature can provide a kind of scrapbook, in a way, like filling in photos that you never had the chance to take or answering questions you never had the chance to ask the loved ones in your life. You might never truly understand someone very close to you, and then you read a book, and suddenly you do. You understand them a little better. That's a very, very powerful thing. That's like a machine that can generate love. You pour words into the top and you turn the crank and love comes out like honey. So, my thanks to Patricia Engel for joining me. You can find her book, Infinite Country, wherever you buy books, and it is worth checking out. Along with our new friend, Charlie Stein. You can find her stuff at charliestein.com. Maybe head to one of her exhibits when you get the chance. And now... It's time to say goodbye, my dear friends. We will be back next time with a deeper look at the story recommended by Patricia Engel today. Maybe we'll hear a bit from that so you can get your Garcia Marquez fix. Boy, it's always Christmas morning here at the History of Literature, isn't it? Well, <laughs> Mondays and Thursdays anyway. We've got who's on the schedule? Some Willa Cather coming up. That's good stuff. And some, oh boy, Lolita. That is one you won't want to miss. We're going to do a couple shows on that. We might have to do more than a couple. Lolita, speaking of 20th century giants. Mike Palindrome is going to be back soon. It's been hard to schedule, Mike. He is so busy. I think we're going to talk about writer's block in one episode. Probably have a draft for that one. And Thucydides, one of my old favorites from the University of Chicago days. <laughs> say that like Thucydides and I were friends back then. Mike and I were friends, but Thucydides, I suppose we were friends in a sense too. Adam Smith and Thucydides and the young Jack Wilson wearing his college sweatshirts and jeans all winter long and his college sweatshirts and shorts all summer. 
Quite a trio we were. Smith and Thucydides and I, a trio of oddballs. We are a part of Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate, www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Podglomerate, a sonic universe.